morning, Cassandra. So lovely to have you here this morning on our Humans at Work podcast. And we're super excited to be able to have a conversation with you. We know that you are a coach, a consultant, a speaker, an author, all of the good things. So we are interested in getting your insights in and around human skills and a range of other topics. But before we kick off, I'd love it if you could just introduce yourself a little bit and share who you're working with, what kind of clients you're working with, and start from there. Great. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here, Michelle. And uh, so a little bit of my background. Yeah, I've actually worked for organisations. I've figured it out for 30 years because I started working when I was 15 and I'm now 45, you know. So I've got a lot of experience having worked for many organisations um, across the world in Australia and overseas and about two years ago I decided to start my own business um, and so I'm working with a range of clients across different industries uh, and I, I primarily focus on how do we create workplaces that really uplift humans, how do we underpin great customer experiences with great employee experiences because my career plays has played around with both customer experience design and then later employee experience design so I'm really fascinated about how do you bring those two things together and how do you um, underpin great customer outcomes with great employee experience and how do you consider culture and brand as two sides of the one coin (laughs) Um, and so the last three years, I've also been working on my first book, which is called Self-Fidelity, which is all about how we, how being true to ourselves has the potential to uplift our working lives. And that's been a big focus for many years. And that book will be available December this year, December 2020. And so there's been a lot of energy and time spent getting that book uh, into good shape. Fantastic. Um, There's a couple of things I want to dig into about your answer, but the first one is in your answer, you've used the word uplift twice. And that is such a beautiful word and it is a rarely used word. So I'm interested, is that one of your favourite words? Did it just happen to come out twice in that intro? (laughs) So a good pickup. So I do love this idea of uplifting and uh, it's a word that I've only recently started to use because, as you know, Michelle, you've gone through the journey of writing a book and for anyone listening who's written a book, that process is very crystallising and synthesising and I've made a lot of, made a, a sense of a lot of stuff through the process of writing this book and this core question about what is it that I do? You know, what is the essence of me and what is the essence of my work? And I've really come to realise that the essence is about helping people to feel uplifted in their lives, in their working lives. And the book specifically talks about this idea of of given that all of us work, whether we work in home or or outside of the home in in terms of paid work, how might we um, think about the the possibility of uplifting our working lives? And this idea of lift was really inspired by a book called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Have you come across that book? Um, yeah, I really love his other book, The Surrender Experiment, actually. Yes. Well, actually, that's on my reading list. I haven't read The Surrender Experiment yet, but I've, I've heard it, it's been recommended to me by several people. 
but when I read The Untethered Soul, it really struck a chord with me and this this central metaphor Buckle uses around the hot air balloon and that a hot air balloon naturally wants to live naturally wants to rise once we kind of let the things that hold us down or hold us back and this idea that we as humans have this natural buoyancy if you like this natural capacity and desire to lift um, and that in fact we have everything within us that we need to lift it but often the work is letting go of the things that weigh us down and hold us back. And so, yeah, the central metaphor of my book is this idea of uplift, uh, how it might you um, l- let be this natural buoyancy that exists within each of us. How, how do we let be our essential nature as humans? How do we let go of the things that hold us down or weigh us down? And how do we kind of let in the nourishment and the vitality we need to even further accelerate this uplift that I think nat- naturally exists within each of us Mm, that's fascinating you know you know how people say you get more of what you focus on I can't help but think Mm. in the self-development industry and the professional development industry to to um, an extent as well whenever people talk about being held back or held back about something Mm-hmm. I feel like they're being held back because they keep talking about being held back. Mm. <laughs> as, in, <laughs> it, as in it's a self-perpetuating prophecy. Yes. The more they focus on the fact that they have this self-limiting belief or this issue with that or that issue with something else, well, in one way I get it and it's refreshing because it's open and honest, but in another way I'm sitting there going, you hold, that's how you're holding yourself back by even thinking for a second that you're yeah. held back. <laughs> Yeah, there is an irony, isn't there? And we know from a neuroscience perspective, we know about the particular activating system that filters incoming data based on your belief. So if you believe, you know, um, I, I am unworthy and therefore I'll never be truly successful as a leader or that I've got fundamental flaw in my personality, which means I'll never be successful I'm held, or I'm held back from this story from my past, a story that's proof that I'm somehow, you know, unworthy, inadequate or fundamentally flawed, you know, Uh, And we hold on to these stories and we hold these beliefs. We know that the reticular activating system will filter the the data that we perceive to reinforce belief. We know confirmation bias, negativity bias, all these um, well-understood features of the human uh, thinking absolutely uh, mean that our beliefs want to be proven true. And, And so, yeah, working with skill and awareness around, you know, I think having an awareness that we have limiting beliefs, fear-based beliefs that are heavy in nature, you know, bringing awareness to the conversation, but also understanding that, you know, beliefs are just thoughts that we keep thinking, right, and that every moment is a choice to think a different thought. Absolutely. And isn't, isn't that the most empowering thing that you've ever come across? I know when the yes. for me when the penny dropped for me about the fact that our thoughts are something that we choose and that we can change them and that by changing them we access the shift to, to our whole world to create our whole world the way that we want to, I just felt this massive um, burden lift off me, I think, because yes. I finally got it that it was okay and that the power was inside of me. And until then, I'd been one of these people that was really seeking externally, and I hadn't quite understood that the answer was internal. It is absolutely a life-changing insight. And, you know, I talk a lot about this in my book, 
and the, the, the sections of my book are waking up, letting be, letting go and letting in. And waking up was the whole section is about this awareness that we are not our thoughts, that the stories in our head are predominantly fake news. And that if we choose to believe these stories, if we choose to identify with our thoughts, if we choose to treat our thoughts as instructions on how to behave, then, you know, this this vast potential that you so often speak about, Michelle, this deep, vast potential that each of us have, we'll never, you know, we'll only ever skim the surface of that potential unless we really get this idea that we are not our thoughts, that our true selves are not represented by any of the voices in our heads, uh, and that our true wisdom um, lies beneath all of that and through this practice of awareness and you know the Buddhists would explain that of course that this remembrance that we are the sky and not the clouds the clouds being the weather patterns of our mind our thoughts in this this deep knowing that I'm the sky not the cloud and that I have the capacity in any moment to wake up and remember that that is life-changing I absolutely believe that yeah that is I, I entirely agree with that uh, I want to take you back to something you said earlier in the introduction of your conversation in regards to the link between brand and culture. And mm-hmm. I'm smiling when you say that because I talk about that all the time and I don't often hear other people talk about it. So I really want you just to touch on that for a second mm-hmm. in terms of the similarities between communicating just externally versus internally. Mm-hmm. And also if you can comment on I feel like in the past, organisations could get away with having a brand that didn't match their culture, yeah. but these days they can't. <laughs> no, there's no enough full transparency. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think I came to that realisation. I, I spent probably the first 15 years of my corporate career on the customer side of the equation, working in Lean Six Sigma. I spent eight years with GE, you know, climbing the ranks black belt master black belt quality leader and spending all this time and energy um, trying to figure out how to optimize customer experience by looking at the inputs and the outputs to customer experience and there were always there was a lot of statistics involved in that role and there was always this 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 idea of this lurking variable which was the variable in that hidden transfer equation between inputs and outputs that you couldn't quite capture in a spreadsheet and do a correlation analysis (laughs) on and it was a human factors of course and you know, I, I started to realize more and more that it was the human factors that determined the the quality, the reliability, the repeatability of those customer outcomes or the processes. And so I started to become more and more interested in the employee experience elements and these more, I suppose, harder to measure and harder to analyze and pin down on a spreadsheet, the human factors that, that we each bring as as members of an organization and how those factors combine to create customer outcomes Mm. and and so I really became very interested and spent some had some great roles including being global director of employee experience for a global healthcare company where you know I was responsible for bringing that organization's purpose to life The, the organization's purpose was longer healthier happier lives and that was a customer focused purpose but my role was created to how might we deliver that purpose to our 86,000 people across the globe and that was a wonderful wonderful experience and um it became very clear to me you know I kind of think it as it's kind of very hollow and fragile if you have this purpose let's say longer healthy happier lives 
and you spend all your energy and time focusing on how you deliver that to the customers who are paying a buck and you kind of skip over the employees for for whom they're giving so much to the organisation, it becomes a very hollow, fragile kind of proposition. That's the way I kind of describe it. You know, but to create something that's really true, that's really solid, that idea of longer, healthier, happier lives as an example, as an organisational purpose, must first be delivered to the employees within the organisation, to their families, and then from that kind of solid base, then that purpose can then flow out to the customers the organisation serves, the community that they the serves and, and the, the organisation serves and ultimately to the broader ecosystems in which organisations operate. So I kind of see it as this kind of thing that kind of radiates outwards but must start by being fully activated within the organisation yeah. for that radiance to be possible. Yeah, and I think the key to that is to understand the layers of the logic from the employees to the customers, et cetera, and how that works because mm. we see in lots of organisations that leaders think that it's their job to deal with the customers and they yes. shouldn't deal with the customers at all. <laughs> they That's right. Zero I, interaction with the yes. customers. I, there's a, you know, I love that Simon Sinek quote that says there's not a CEO on the planet that's responsible for customers. Yeah. CEOs are responsible for the people who are responsible for the people who are responsible exactly. for the customers. And, and what, what I find is in organisations that don't have that chain of logic right, they're fraught with difficulties because Absolutely. it means that no one is looking after the employee population because everyone's kind of skipped over them as almost yeah. like, uh, something that's not not important in any way. Yeah, and it, and it's it's... It's such an ingrained, conditioned way of thinking that, you know, um, this idea of kind of skipping over the people who are sacrificing so much often and working so hard for your organisation, the humans that actually make your organisation, kind of this idea of skipping over them to, to the folks who are going to pay a buck. You know, that, that's been a recurring theme that and I've observed. Then people are sitting there wondering why we have less than 30% engagement. Like it's not really rocket science. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. And, you know, even if you think about, you know, the, the amazing products, you know, I see so many organisations that offer their customers, these amazing products and services. But yet the question is is very rarely asked, like how how do we give our own employees access to these same products and services, maybe not for free, maybe the... The the finances of giving free um, services to employees is just not viable, but certainly at a discounted rate, certainly um, piloting new products and services that, that have, you know, benefits with your employees first and including them in every consideration around how you know, how do you create value as an organisation? How do we create that value and deliver that value to our employees first? Yeah. It's, it's you know, that that's not not a mindset I often see and it's I often in my career I've always been like to your team saying, um, are we going to offer this to our people? Um, and it's often an afterthought. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, I want to dig into a comment that you just made a couple of questions ago in and around human skills and the human factor, I think you called it. And what I'd like to hear is in your work and in your travels with clients, with the writing of your book, et cetera, what do you think some of the key human skills are that are going to be able to help us take our workplaces into the future? Maybe the top, top two. Great question. Yeah. Well, 
So in terms of skills, uh, I, I would say the top one would be self-awareness as leaders. Um, so this idea of having an awareness of our own thinking, having the ability to know that we are not our thoughts, uh, having a strong awareness of our own strengths and preferences and knowing that our preferences are just preferences, not, you know, conditions that must be met in order for us to be happy. Um, so this whole huge topic of self-awareness, I would say, is a, is a number one skill. Um, I find it one other one. Maybe I'll talk at a high level then around what I see as the elements of our essential nature as humans that have been forgotten in organisations and uh, in terms of I think about this term self-fidelity which is what I decided to call my book which is this this idea of being faithful to one's oneself and I define self-fidelity as the practice of being true to our essential nature and so when I think about skills, I, I, I do think about these elements of our essential nature as humans and as leaders and employees that are often kind of conditioned out of us in organisations that have so long treated humans like robots. And there's five key elements of our essential nature that I, I think are worth remembering uh, and practising, and, and they are that we are all worthy, that we are all vulnerable, that we are all caring, we are all creative, and we are all playful. And I chose those five key elements of our shared essential nature to focus on in in this book because I felt that these are elements of our essential nature that, as I said, are often forgotten and perhaps not uh, embodied, inhabited often as leaders. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love the name of your book too because if you think about it, like if you think about it, our, ourselves and everyone else around us are betraying ourselves yeah. multiple times in a day. Yeah. Like every time you say to yourself, I'm going to go for a run this morning and then you roll over and you hit snooze, betrayal. Every time mm-hmm. you say that you're going to do something and you don't do it, betrayal. And what I'm interested in is what's underneath that because mm-hmm. people would never feel like it's okay to betray another human and yet mm-hmm. they will happily betray themselves. Oh my gosh, yes. And <laughs> and feel as though it's perfectly okay and normal and accepted. Oh, I mean, what a huge topic. And you've hit the nail on the head. And I I I, I would describe self-fidelity as the opposite of self-betrayal, which as you say, has become the norm for so many of us. I mean, even if you think about the way we speak to ourselves, right, if you spoke to another human the way you would speak, you speak to yourself, you know, you'd be up for charges of emotional abuse, right? (laughs) Very quickly you'd find yourself. (laughs) It would be emotional abuse. If a member of your family spoke to you the way you speak to yourself, it would probably be emotional abuse, right? So even if you the way we speak to ourselves, we're, we're not really being faithful. We're, we're not, you know, if you think about this idea to love and to honour, you know, the, these vows that we make to other people in, in, in the construct of marriage, for better or for worse, in, 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 and in health, in, for rich, in, what is it, um, in good times, for richer and poorer, you know, we very few of us have made that sort of vow of faithfulness to our own selves, you know, the only truly enduring relationship we'll have. And so 
yes, we do betray ourselves. So often we betray our true nature. Uh, and you know, a lot of this comes back to limiting beliefs. And, you know, I, I go through a range of limiting beliefs that I think mo- most often get in the way and most often uh, lead us into a position of self-betrayal. And in those examples you gave around um, perhaps not taking care of ourselves, then often those limiting beliefs come around this idea that self-care is selfish, that the worst criticism in the world is to be called someone who loves themselves, that I must take care of everyone else first, you know, which is a lot of the belief systems that perhaps we learnt from our parents and their parents parents Mm -hmm. um, particularly women you know who sacrificed so much and took care of everyone else but not themselves and so there's so many ways we learn these these ways of being right that are really ways of self-betrayal it's so interesting you talk about self-care because in the being more human book I've got a whole chapter on self-care and I designed the something that I call the self-care pyramid like this Ah. And I look at what the priorities are in and around self-care because everyone has the same priorities. We're not that different, you know, and we need to be taking care of our sleep and food and exercise and those things first. And then right at the top is work and everything to do with work. But what happens is people invert that pyramid Mm -hmm. and they behave and they act as though it's work that that is the most important thing for them and it is the foundation for everything else they do. And the other stuff has to try and crumble around and fit in on top, which, of course, we know never works. Never works. And, you know, this comes back to this limiting belief, one that I struggled with for many, many years, which is around our own worthiness and our own value. And I believe, for me at least, this um, there was a real shadow side to being a high-achieving, driven corporate executive. And that shadow side was that my entire identity, my entire sense of worthiness and value was tied to my professional identity, my professional achievements. And this idea that um, our value is measured by our job title, our salary package, our performance review rating, uh, the size of our office, how nice our car is, the, the label of our suits, all this identity that goes with being this high-powered executive. And, and for me, I lived that reality for many, many years that um, that I attached my entire self-worth to those measures of my value, which of meant I hitched my heart to a roller coaster ride because when things were going well I was on top of the world you know when I was top talent and I was winning awards you know everything was fine but the moment that perhaps god forbid I was not going to be top talent that year or I wasn't going to get a, as big a bonus as I thought or perhaps my job title had changed or my role had been made redundant all of these things that we go through then my entire identity was at stake and my entire sense of worthiness plummeted and so it took me many years and many years of therapy and and work on myself to really decouple my sense of self-worth from my achievements and that uh, professional identity and to bring this more internal self-referencing sense of worthiness that is not tied to those things. But for so many leaders, particularly those who uh, get to the top of their game, I, I do have a hypothesis it's not validated by any sort of research, but this this hypothesis that many of us as high achievers are kind of propelled by this shadow of low self worth because um, it's so it's so common to attach our self worth to our achievements, and, and that 
can can be a great fuel, but it's also a fuel that's going to lead to burnout. Look, I think in my experience of working with executives, I'll often go into a, a room of executives or leaders in a business and say there's eight people in the room. There would be one or two people in the room where I would go, I would work with you anywhere, anytime. You know, you're sharp, you're clever, you're compassionate, you're understanding. And the other six are there because they've been promoted into those roles or because maybe they couldn't find someone else to do it or maybe they knew how to play the promotion system. Mm -hmm. Um, They're there for reasons that don't extend to them being incredibly um, talented executives in the first instance. Um, But what fascinates me is that that exists at the same time as this lack of belief in their own potential. Mm. And that's what I see in executive rooms all of the time is I believe far more in their potential than what they do. Yeah, and what a gift you bring them to those conversations because I think I would say that I, I relate to that. I've, I've always believed in the potential of humans and when we bring that to conversations, outcomes are, are different, right? And I, I think there's so many executives who lack that self-awareness who haven't done the work and let's face it it's hard work you know this work of um sorting through your own belief systems becoming aware of your thinking learning to disengage from your thinking learning to respond versus react finding a place of stillness between stimulus and response you know this is years of practice and it takes uh, it takes courage. It takes uh, capacity to inhabit one's vulnerability. Um, and for so many of us, that just feels too hard and it remains in the too hard basket for too long. And often maybe it's not until there's some sort of crisis where people realise, oh, gosh, okay, something needs to shift. But, you know, it's a, it's a shame to have to get to crisis is to really awaken really to a level of self-awareness that, that puts them back into the driver's seat of not only accessing the depth of their potential, accessing their own humanity, their own caring, playful, vulnerable, creative worthiness uh, that's in, in intrinsic in all of us. But uh, And through that, you know, being able to connect with others, connect and inspire the hearts of others. You know, I like to say that, that you know, the job of a leader is no longer to optimise headcount. The job of a leader is to inspire heart count and only leaders who who really are in touch with their own caring nature, their own potential can ever do that. And tell me, like we've talked a lot about doing the work and diving in deep and going inward, what uh, for, for people who are listening to this, who are sitting there going, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but, <laughs> what are the personal professional benefits that you have gotten directly as a result of going deep Mm. okay so let's start with the personal benefits um there's no doubt I'm a better mother and a better wife you know and you know I'll give an example um around this, the stories in my head that if I believe those stories I would not be a good 
uh, not be the sort of wife or mother I know I can be. So the, the common story that I have that I, I I do battle with, even now with a great level of awareness, is this very silly belief. I don't know where I picked it up, but this belief that if I, at the end of my working day, if my husband and my children do not ask me how my day was, it means they don't love me. <laughs> this is a story. <laughs> that one will set you up for failure. <laughs> right? But but. You know, it, it it's still uh, amazes me how I can get gripped by that story after having done all the mindfulness training and the meditation and, and all all this, you know, cognitive understanding that the, the stories are my often fake news. I am still finding myself often hooked, and I, I this emotional reaction within me that no one asked me about my how my day was. That means none of these people love me, and I start thinking about small apartments that I can move into down the road. You know what? I'm, I'm just going to reflect something to you because what you're saying to me sounds, I hope you don't mind me doing this, but no, no. what you're saying to me sounds very similar to what you said a little bit earlier. And in both instances, it was about externalizing the responsibility for your emotional world. Mm, yes. Instead of yes, internalizing so- the responsibility of your emotional world. Exactly. And this story that, uh, yes, I'm sure it's connected with my my multi-decade struggle with this idea of self-worth, that, that I need um, someone else to ask me how my day was for me to feel okay about my day. So there's no, no doubt that the root of this story is way back in, in those old, old stories of low self-worth. But in terms of a practical example, you know, my capacity to notice that story in my head and, and and it still comes up, you know, on the days that no nobody asked me how my day was, that story will still come up after all this work. And in, so in a personal sense, my capacity to see that story, to say, ah, right on time, no one asked me how my day was, here's my little story about um, that no one loves me and be able to continue to engage in a, a, in a nice evening with my family despite the fact that no one has asked me about my day. It, it might seem silly, but for me that's a big win, right, because for many years I would sit quite sullenly at the dinner table, you know, in my own head, you know, thinking about where I might move out to, where, where I might get a nice little apartment, which is just ridiculous. But it, but it's the truth, right? So in my own personal life, being able to catch those little stories, mm, um, so powerful, so powerful. It's off track and not not be loving, you know, you know, only the loving find love. That old saying, right? And these stories stop me from loving. And so in my personal life, there's many little stories like that, and I share a few in my in my book that um, that I'm through awareness, I'm able to fake news so that's my personal life I think in my professional life I, I think um you know, I, I've, I've always been really proud to lead and build high performing highly engaged teams and in all my corporate roles my employee engagement skills and my team always you know exceeded the organizational average and I think that that the thing the thing that me mainly there is this simple idea of linking versus ranking and I I talk about this again in my book but this simple idea that when you're with another human being you can either be in linking mode where your heart is open um, where you're finding grounds for connection where you're connecting heart to heart with another human 
or you can be in this ranking mode and ranking might be you're ranking yourself over, trying to assert your authority, trying to pretend like you have all the answers, or you might be ranking yourself beneath someone. You know, you might have a voice in your head that tells you that you don't really know what you're doing and you should just keep your mouth shut. Um, you shouldn't ask difficult questions. So this idea Linking versus ranking, I would say that's worthy of consideration. It's a really good way to start, right, to start this work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes self-awareness, right, to, in moment to say, am I linking or am I ranking with this other person in this conversation right now? And how might, if I feel like there's ranking happening, and, of course, sometimes there needs to be ranking. If you're with the CEO, you know, it's probably appropriate that to be an element of ranking and respectfulness in the conversation. But for often when we intentionally replace this ranking dynamic with a linking dynamic then really amazing outcomes can happen not only do you build strong relationships with your team are you connecting human to human uh, are people more engaged are there, is there a better level of psychological safety are people more likely to tell you that their struggles or things that you've done as a leader that didn't quite work for them you know I think this idea of ranking um, and being aware of ranking um, is something that is really beneficial for leaders because I, I, I think the the days of, of ranking and, and leaders being in control, having all the answers are gone and this idea of leaders being able to link and connect and inspire um, to navigate together as a team to sense and learn and respond through challenges we've never solved before. That That's where, where leadership is today. Mm. So, so many pearls of wisdom in all of that. And I could chat to you for an hour, but I'm conscious that we're not going to be chatting for an hour. So what I'd love to do just for the last question, can you please tell our listeners on our Humans at Work podcast where they can go to find you and where they can go to buy your beautiful book that's coming out in December. Thanks, Michelle. So uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Cassandra Goodman. Uh, at the moment, the best website is CassandraGoodman.com. I'm building my self-fidelity website that's coming soon, but you can find links to that and links to my upcoming book on CassandraGoodman.com. Awesome. And maybe just for the very, very last one, can you give one handy hint to leaders to navigate 2020 and beyond? One handy hint. One handy hint. Uh, I would say practice um, observing your thoughts. You know, Rick, Dr. Rick Hansen talks about this simple idea that so often we spend our days as being actors in the movie of our life, fully engrossed in acting out the role as lead actor in the movie of our lives. How might you get out of the movie and sit back into the seat in the movie theatre and and just start to observe, you know, that old saying, sit uh, off the dance floor and sit in the balcony. You know, I think my biggest hint would be start to become more aware of your thoughts, the stories in your head, um, and start to um, realise that often the stories in our head, the, the voices in our head are not the truth and certainly not the best instructions on how to behave. So I think my biggest tip would be, you know, with a play with a playful approach, see if you can start to notice this inner dialogue and what is the nature of that inner dialogue. Uh, and and um, start through that awareness to have more choice in any moment about how we show up as leaders. Beautiful. Thanks again, Cassandra. I appreciate your time. Take care. You're very welcome, Michelle.